Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 8, Growing Farmers, with Ben and Greta of Unadilla Community Farm. In this episode, we speak with Ben and Greta about what got them into farming, how they help educate the next generation of young farmers, and let out our inner plant nerds as we get down and dirty and talk about dynamic accumulators. I hope you enjoy the episode. All right. Welcome, Ben and Greta, to the Plant Cunning Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Hello. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for inviting us. Absolutely. We're super excited to talk with you guys today. Um, we actually met Ben and Greta through the National Young Farmers Coalition in the area. They run the local chapter here, and they were our first friends uh, when we <laughs> moved to the area. We didn't know anybody, and we just feel really lucky that it was you guys that welcomed us to the area. Um, and so, yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> you guys are great. And yeah, so- we were so happy to meet you as well and to find like-minded people moving to this area. You know, it can feel so isolated in some ways here in this very rural area, but there's actually a lot of young people tucked away in the woods doing small-scale sustainable agriculture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's pretty It's pretty awesome. So I would love to just um, start out with a little introduction if you want to both just introduce yourselves and who you are, what you have been up to, um, what brought you to to farming and to this area. So I don't know whoever wants to go first, either Ben or Greta. All right, I'll go first. Okay. So let's see, I guess um, I started out my like adult life doing construction stuff, remodeling and drywall and carpentry and the usual stuff. After a few years of doing that, I wanted to try to use my skills to um, contribute to the movement and do something good for the world. So I mm. first I switched to, um, I went down to Nicaragua and I was working with the Sandinistas doing low-income housing there. But that was all still like cement, lots of cement. Mm. And I realized that um, we weren't really um addressing the root issue that we were building lots of houses for people who didn't have jobs and didn't really have any hope of ever getting jobs and then there was just this endless tide of people needing these houses and um yeah after that i switched to um just working with natural materials and then was working with intentional communities and organic farms sort of like the two general groups of clientele that would be serious enough to throw down money for like a cool natural building project right and then i started realizing that it's the farmer who's the real hero who's like creating um wealth and jobs for the local community turning Mm -hmm. waste materials around town into like awesome compost and like yeah make you know producing good food and health and happiness for the community and uh yeah, so I still use my building skills in like a support role for our farm here. 
Yeah, and so that's sort of in a roundabout way how I ended up being interested in organic farming and, and sustainable living. Yeah, um, in terms of my story, um, my parents started an organic food store in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania um, in 1993 when I was born. Um, and so I grew up in the food store, organic food store, and kind of, you know, through growing up in that environment, sort of intimately understood the connections between our food choices, human health, the environment and culture and kind of all those intersections of the food system so cool. and the importance of organic agriculture. Mm -hmm. um, and so then from there, um, when I was 15, I became vegetarian and sort of my whole family decided to do that together. And so I've always kind of had these underpinnings, I guess, of, you know, um, exploring the food system and seeing, you know, seeing the necessary changes that need to happen. Um, and I wasn't really sure, you know, what, how I would actually enact those changes and what I would do with my life. Um, I, on one hand, I wanted to focus on policy change and kind of looking at systemic change, not just doing piecemeal mm -hmm. um, change. And so I got into grassroots organizing um, and that's kind of one hat that I wear. Um, I first uh, started organizing with Food and Water Watch, working on issues of GMO labeling fracking, um, the privatization of water. Um, and so that was kind of my first entry into this notion of organizing as a way to kind of use our people power to um, advocate for policy change related to the food system, related yeah. to climate change, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also at the same time uh, in college started woofing, um, first in Vermont mm -hmm. and then in Arizona where I met Ben. Cool. And so woofing was um, kind of for me the other piece of my desire for change. It was, you know, okay, let's actually get my hands dirty. Um, you know, I grew up in, in the city, so I did not have any experience with that. Um, and, you know, it was sort of almost a primal thing for me to go back to, you know, where does our food come from, um, using composting toilets, you know, having to carry your own waste and um, pump the water from the well and kind of, you know, how do we exist, uh, yeah, yeah, propping up our existence in the most um, basic way. And so, yeah, anyway, kind of fast forward to now, I have what I call this two-prong approach where I still do grassroots organizing and kind of advocating for policy change. Um, but then I also have the farm and, you know, do the, the on-the-ground change as well, which I think is so necessary to be literally building this alternative system that we want to see um, building that at the same time that we're advocating for these larger changes. Yeah, it, it seems like uh, collective action is necessary, uh, but it's not sufficient. And and personal action is also maybe not sufficient, but it's definitely necessary. Mm. You got to have both to really make any change. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, we can see just by the level of interest in our internship program, which we literally have hundreds of applications every year. Um, you know, we can see that this younger generation is really desiring this kind of on the ground, tangible change. I think that we're, we're sort of fed up with the system. We're not seeing changes happening in Washington. And so, you know, this is something we can really do. We can do permaculture projects. We can grow our own food. 
um, you know, we can build our own structures. And so I really see that as a form of activism and as a form of um, divestment, really, from the big corporations that we're dependent on. Yeah, it, it seems to me that like that's very important. I think leading by example is, is a very, very important thing to do. Uh, so what, what is Unadilla Community Farm and, and how did that come to be? Let's see. So rewind eight or nine years. At the time, we were all, uh, there was, uh, there were eight or nine of us all um, woofing or like interning on organic farms. <clears throat> That's what I was doing for, for years. I would um, do paid natural building work when I could get it, which would be like the building season. And then when I couldn't get work, I would be woofing and which is a great way to like travel see the world like see a whole bunch of cool projects and meet a whole bunch of people and learn a whole a whole lot about whatever it is that you want to be doing and so i would be doing that in the off season and um, eventually there there was like me and my friend group who would always be talking like just people meeting while woofing and being like man this place is really cool and one day I'd like to have my own place and, you know, it would, we'd do it, take some things from this place or this other place was doing this, which was really cool and we could do that. And so then there were different friend groups and we all sort of converged, got introduced to each other and then decided that we were going to pool our resources together cooperatively to like get some land and get tools and like work out the, the, uh, the vision for what it is we want to do. I think that, that's something that really sets us apart from other um, organic farms and education centers is that um, we're all like millennials and ex-woofers. And so woofing isn't really, it's not in farming in general, isn't a very uh, lucrative career. So, and then being millennials, a lot, a lot of us had like student debt and everything. For sure. Um, but, you know, putting together what little resources we had, we were able to like buy 12 acres and like get a tiller and a generator. And when we bought the land, it was completely vacant, just some old abandoned fields and forests. Um, yeah, and so that's how Unadilla Community Farm began as just a, a place for all of us to pool our resources together and, and get land and then continue then to be honing our skills and teaching others our experience and having our, our doors open to um, people looking for a work exchange. So fast forward from a field eight or nine years ago, what, <laughs> when, you, when you show up at Unadilla Community Farm now, what do you see? All right, well, let's see. The, the land is um, two fields and some forest. When you enter, we have a really long gravel driveway now and you drive through the orchard. And our orchard has, um, I think at this point, sort of lost count at 200. Maybe we have like 250 cold hardy fruit and nut trees and hundreds of um, uh, berry bushes and lots of different perennial herbs and everything. And we have, our, our orchard is planted, the trees are in rows, and then there's also alley rows between the trees. And um, out in the orchard, we're doing lots of companion planting you have the um, like the canopy layer with the fruit trees. Then you have like the sub canopy layer with shorter growing um, fruit bearing trees. And then you have 
you know, the different like the herbaceous layer and, and the creeping ground cover. Forest garden approach. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So we have some multi-story cropping going on with the different levels. And then we also have like alley cropping between the trees. Yeah. So we're trying to create a food forest that can both meet all of our needs, sort of going back to what we were talking about earlier, put pressure on politicians and try to, you know, get things to change for the better. I think that that's good. But at the same time, I think it's also good for us all to be trying to um, get as self-sufficient as we can as quickly as possible. Yes. Don't want to hold our breath (laughs) waiting for them to change. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. And then plus also just the economics of farming can be really rough. Like, I don't think it's really worth it to sell any fruit until you make sure that you and your operation is 100% self-sufficient with fruit and then sell your surplus. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, that's led to us to um, diversify. So we have lots of fruit, nuts, um, vegetables, herbs, mushrooms, trying to anything that we can that we can brainstorm, <clears throat> that we can provide for ourselves, um, making our own soap and lotions and deodorant and different cosmetics product, products and that kind of stuff. Yeah, so that's, anyways, the orchard. We were driving up the driveway. So there's a whole lot going on out there and showcasing all these different um, companion plant, different symbiotic relationships between the plants. And then we have in the center of the property, we're building our our base camp here so at this point we have a timber framed barn that that we've built with um locally felled hemlock lumber we're really lucky that there's lots of amish living in the area and so a couple doors down our friend Ammon has a mill and so him and his sons um cut down a bunch of trees and milled them for us and so we got big eight by eight hemlock yeah, that, that barn is so beautiful. You did such a wonderful job. Thank you. That was, it, it still is an epic project. We're not, we've been working on it slowly for, uh, for seven or eight years now, and uh, it's still not fully done. We want to plaster the walls and, mm-hmm. and um, pack the, the wall cavities with, uh, with slip straw and slip chip. But at the moment, it, it's still functional as a, as a big timber frame um, roofed structure. Um, we have a high tunnel now where we grow lots of crops in there. That's pretty much what's going on here. Do you have anything to add, Gunnar? No, that that was a good overview. I would add um, one thing, you know, asking what is Unadilla Community Farm? Our mission statement, which has been the mission statement from the beginning, is to provide a space for the teaching and practice of sustainable skills. Um, and so you can see from that mission statement that we've kept it pretty broad. And I think that Ben's description um, perhaps illustrates why, because we're trying to showcase this kind of holistic vision, which you could use the word permaculture perhaps as an umbrella term. Um, so we're showcasing the farming, but also the natural building. And as Ben mentioned, you know, making your own soap and um, different kind of homesteading skills. So it's the programs that we offer, the internship, for example, are um, around this kind of holistic approach. Um, and so that's why our mission is about sustainable skills in general. And as Ben said, you know, trying to become self-sufficient for ourselves and teaching others how to do that. Awesome. Yeah. So tell us about the internship program. 
Yeah, so we've been running the internship um, all the way since the beginning. Um, so we've had seven seasons of the farm and seven seasons of the internship program, which is pretty amazing that people came even when we were living in tents and had nothing to show for ourselves. Um, but that was part of it too, was kind of saying, you know, come if you want to learn how to literally build a farm from scratch uh, from the ground up in a field. And so, yeah, as I was saying, we showcase this holistic approach using the umbrella of permaculture. And so interns participate in the organic farming, um, such as running our veggie box program, um, also in natural building projects, learning skills like timber framing um, and stone masonry, and then also general homesteading skills um, like how to make soap and how to cook vegan food um, and how to chop firewood and kind of all those random uh, self-sufficiency skills. Um, the program is seasonal from May until September and we get about 20 to 30 interns a season. Um, most interns stay for one month, but some stay longer. Um, and one exciting thing is that we've actually been able to offer college credit. Um, so we get students from across the country and even from around the world who come here and they're able to then con you know, connect this to their university work. And sometimes they have an additional component they have to do, such as a research paper or an interview or something like that. And then they're able to actually get college credit for the experience. That's um, awesome. Yeah. Very cool. The internship program is really focused on the educational side of things, but you're also running the Veggie Box program. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so as I was saying, um, the programs are really intertwined because the interns participate in all aspects of the Veggie Box program from the seeding and transplanting, weeding, watering, harvesting, um, wash and pack station, you know, all the way up to delivery. And so, you know, that becomes an educational tool for them to see, you know, what is it like to run basically a CSA style farm? Um, you know, is that something that they're interested in? Do they want to pursue a career in that? Um, so that's one aspect. And, and just to say a little more about the Veggie Box program, um, the program runs for 24 weeks from June to November. Um, this is our second year doing the program. Um, and we provide home deliveries of fresh, fresh vegetables um, throughout the season. And so this year we actually switched to a home delivery model due to COVID. And so we've been delivering it right to people's doorsteps, which you know, saves people time and gas money so they don't have to drive. You know, as you guys intimately know, um, most people have to drive 40 minutes to get to the nearest big box store to get their groceries yeah. around here. Um, so that's sort of central to why we're doing the Veggie Box program is to provide local food to local people um, and not be shipping off our food to, uh, you know, New York City markets, but to keep the food locally and, you know, to, to try to um, provide better food access in this area, which is considered a USDA low income, low access food desert. Yeah, I, it's, it was interesting to me um, hearing that this is considered a food desert uh, coming from Pittsburgh or a city where oftentimes food deserts are considered like an urban area. Um, but it's true. It, it's half an hour at least to an Aldi or a price chopper or some grocery store. But then there's also so much agriculture out here and so much uh, wild foraging to be had and a lot of people hunt out here. And, and you also, you know, you have a lot of Amish folks and, and they have veggie stands too. So it's, it seems like the veggie box program, especially this year where you can take it to people, has been really helpful for a lot of people who 
are used to getting their food from big box stores. How has that been with COVID this year? Um, yeah, well, like I said, we switched to the delivery model and that's been working well. Um, and actually we were able to get a couple of grants from local uh, foundations in the area to support the program this year and to help subsidize the costs um, because we do try to keep the program very affordable. So we are selling the boxes you know, below the cost of producing them. Um, so the grants were able to subsidize our materials for running the program and our delivery vehicle fees and everything. Mm, awesome. um, yeah, and so that was really great, and we hope to, to continue getting that support to keep running the program, um, and next year we'll be um, taking it to the next level by actually offering the program on a sliding scale, um, which will then, you know, increase accessibility even more. So what, what is the business, like, model and plan for the farm? Is it mo mostly from grants and donations, or, like, how do, how do you keep it going? Yeah, so um, we actually just got 501c3 nonprofit status this year, um, which was a dream seven years in the mm -hmm. making, um, because as I said, you know, our mission from the beginning has been education. Um, so we knew that a 501c3 nonprofit model would fit well with what we're trying to do. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we finally got that, uh, which was really exciting. Congrats. And so, That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much. Um, and amidst COVID and everything that that was able to happen was really great. And so that model now allows us to access grant funding because now donations to our farm are tax deductible. And so um, now we're, you know, now we can apply to lots of different programs to support our veggie box program, to support our educational programs um, that we previously couldn't access without this status. So how is that process for you? getting it done, what was, what were the challenges? Well, it was definitely um, an epic journey to finally get here. Uh, right from the beginning, we knew that we wanted to be recognized as, as a nonprofit for our education work. But yeah, it is, uh, it's really complicated. And uh, we were just really lucky that we were able to get some free legal help. And that, that was really finally over the past year, we were able to finally get all the documents in order and everything. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend doing it on your own, um, really. It was, the, okay. yeah, the pro bono lawyers that helped us were just instrumental to guiding us through the process and drafting all of the multitude of documents from the bylaws to the conflict of interest policy and all of that. Yeah, I mean, I think this is not a model that we would recommend for most farms. Um, and when, you know, when the interns come, you know, a, a part of the internship, as I said earlier, is like kind of a trial run for them to see, uh, you know, are they interested in a farming career path? Um, and so one of the classes that we talk about with them is different legal structures. And we always kind of uh, have a caveat or a warning saying, you know, a 501c3 is not for everyone, not right. for a commercial operation. It's, as we just said, it's a lot of sort of legal work and ongoing work, you know, to, to have an accountant that can manage the books, which have to be done very, you know, strictly um, because you're really in the public eye. Um, so it, it's not an easy process and you really have to make sure that your mission aligns with that structure. And so that's the first step we recommend to all the interns is, you know, first craft your mission statement of what you want to do for your operation mm -hmm. and then see what legal structure best fits that mission. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
So with balancing um, all of the farm work and with the internship program and teaching interns, well, like, what does the day look like for you guys, for your, for your farm with the interns? Like, how do you structure your day? Well, let's see. First of all, we have um, breakfast is like 6.45 to 8 a.m. And everyone can just sort of meander in to the, to the barn is where we set up the, the HQ and, and um, yeah, get some, get some oats and uh, dried fruit or fresh fruit and different stuff. And then from eight to 10, we make lunch and um, I'm the, the head cook. And then everyone is welcome to, to volunteer to help out. And sometimes we get interns who are um, really good cooks. So then they can totally take the, take mm, the help. Nice. And uh, yeah, we get lunch all ready by 10. That way we can just set it all on the table and set the table and then go out and work in the field from 10 to 12. And then when we come back, lunch is ready for us. And so in the morning, 10 to 12, we um, were like watering and weeding and doing what we call like the maintenance tasks of just like keeping uh, keeping all the plants happy and everything. And then, um, then after lunch, we go back to work at two. So after a nice long lunch break and then we do two to five and then the afternoon interns get to focus more on long-term projects if there's something in particular that someone is really interested in like honing their carpentry skills or like specifically timber framing or learning more about the, the herbs and that kind of stuff like then everyone has their long-term project that they're working on and then Greta and I are are cycling through checking on everyone and giving instruction. And then from five onwards, then the rest of the afternoon is off and people can uh, go swim in the river or, or hang out or go for, go for a walk in the woods or, or down one of the great seasonal access roads around here. Yeah. And then we also have Wednesday open nights, which we just started this year and we'll be continuing every year, um, which is an opportunity for the interns to share something if they want to share a skill or share a story or a poetry reading or something like that. Um, so we do that every Wednesday night. And then um, Sunday morning is when we have our classes, which are part of the internship program. Um, and that's usually uh, 10 a.m. to noon on Sundays. Um, and we have a huge list of classes, probably 15, 20 topics. Um, and then people who can just choose whatever they want, whoever is here can choose what they want to focus on that week. Um, and then usually we also do field trips, which of course we had to limit this year due to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, but normally we would do field trips at least once a month, like to visit other farms and do volunteer work days or go to the farmer's museum or that kind of thing. And then we also bring in guest instructor, uh, instructors, uh, like AC did the herbalism workshop via Zoom uh, this year. Um, and that was actually one of our most popular workshops, I have to say. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Great. Glad to hear it. <laughs> so we hope to invite you back every year. Well, thank you. I would love to. <laughs> so what's up with Wolf these days? I know that a lot of people in like our generation, maybe the mid to, to older millennials, like Wolf thing, that was like the thing to do back in the day but now things have changed what yeah um we are on probably about 25 different directories and that's my role as the internship coordinator is to be constantly searching for 
directories like Woof, like Workaway, places like that where you can post uh, work exchanges and things related to farming or natural building. Um, and also Facebook groups that are relevant or email listservs, basically any kind of forum. Uh, we're, you know, we're always trying to find different avenues for promoting it. Um, and yeah, we've also seen over the years, like I said, we've been doing this for seven seasons and we've seen a decline in people coming from Woof and an increase in people coming from Workaway. That's the most popular site now um, from our interns. And, you know, I think it, it makes sense. So for Workaway, it's like $35 and you get access to something like 40,000 hosts around the world. Whereas for Woof, it's the same amount of money or even a little bit more and you only get access to 2,000 hosts in the US. But I don't know if you saw the recent news just a couple months ago that Woof is now actually going to be completely revamping its website and trying to integrate many, many countries together under one unified Woof Federation, which I think will be you know, instrumental to kind of, because right now you have to have a $40 you know, plan for the US and a $40 plan for Sweden and each country is separate. Um, so it just doesn't make sense when, again, you can do work away that has them all integrated. Um, so I'm really excited that Wolf is embarking on this and I think it's gonna be a long process for them to create this unified federation, but hopefully we'll see an increase in Wolfing after that. Yeah, and I'm really excited about yeah. this. Um, Wolf has always had a soft spot in my heart um, because it's focused on organic farms. It's like worldwide opportunities on organic farms. Um, so it's all about like getting an education as opposed to other sites like WorkAway or HealthX. Um, mm -hmm. they, um, you know, you might end up just uh, walking someone's dog or right. being a dishwasher in someone's restaurant or, or something. Um, so right. Woof definitely, there's definitely a higher standard for the hosts uh -huh. on Woof. And I've always, in, in my Woofing experiences, using the different sites, Woof has been my favorite. And I'm, I'm really excited to see it, that it's revamping itself now and everything. Um, yeah, because it used to be that that Woof, like everyone knew about Woof, and Woof was really a popular idea, and uh, and they were doing really well, and they even set up like a small farms grant program, like a micro grant program for the Woof hosts. Right. Yeah. So they're they're like great, not only you know like hooking up um, interns with with hosts to you know for education, and then also you know helping out the, the hosts and driving the movement. And then things got a little rocky because now there's a lot more competition from other sites, but, but now they're, they've revamped their whole website. And now there's this talk of forming like a, a broader, like international coalition between the different with platforms to make one super platform and so yeah i should also mention that we're the local host ambassador for this area so when there are new wolf hosts that come to this region we are the people who uh welcome them Aww. so it's not that many you know since this is kind of a very rural isolated area but we're always excited when new people join that's awesome yeah you're definitely great ambassadors and very welcoming so how many interns do y'all have at one time this year we had the most at one time it was 15 people including us um, and we think we want to cap it at that um, just with our current facilities at least that maxes it out but like i said it's about 20 to 30 
across the whole season with some staying for a month and some staying longer. Mm-hmm. So does everybody get along? Yeah, <laughs> I think that a lot of it um, really hinges on doing a good job of um, like interviewing people and trying to find the people who just seem really awesome and like we would all get along really well. Yeah, and that, like I said, I'm the internship coordinator, so that's kind of been my role over the years, and we've refined and refined and refined the process of the application process and the interview process um, to really, you know, make it clear what are we doing, what are we offering, um, and also, you know, who are we looking for, and so they really get a clear sense, and it's almost we go almost over the top of like, are, are you sure, you know, it's off grid, there's a composting toilet, you know, we yeah. really want to be upfront because in the beginning, um, you know, there were some people who realized it wasn't a good fit for them, et cetera. So we've just really refined it. So this year we had an amazing, amazing group with really no problems at all, really great cohesion. And we think it's because of just this refining of the process and the application questions, et cetera, and kind of going through this multi-step process of um, doing a phone interview and then signing a document and reading an app, uh, a packet and kind of all these different steps to be clear, you know, this is what you want to do. This is what you're getting into. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Living on collective farm projects, I found that it can be the most like the community aspect and having so many people around can be the most rewarding thing about the farm, but also the most challenging thing, just navigating different people and different personalities. So it's cool that you've like vetted your interns through the application process to really like try to have that cohesive group. So that's awesome. Yeah. I think living communally can be a challenge at times. um, We've noticed kind of this, um, dynamic between you know people wanting to be with the group all the time and hanging out and everything but then also feeling overwhelmed sometimes if it's a larger group and um so that's something that we we kind of recommend interns is like notice yourself notice how you're feeling you know take time to kind of be alone and um go for a walk in the woods or read a book and and that can be really hard to sort of isolate yourself from the hive um but it is important to to make that time for self-care yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, having the balance of learning and staying active and like having some creativity or some playtime as well as the work can really help with keeping the group cohesion and mm-hmm. helping everything to flow. So I also wanted to talk to you about one of the other exciting projects that you're doing, the SARE grant research on dynamic accumulators. Um, would you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yes, yeah, so um, one of the things that we're showcasing here is using dynamic accumulators around the farm. So when doing a food forest, there's a lot of different plants that are all out there existing together in harmony, all helping each other in different ways. Um, and you're, we're sort of um, nurturing this little ecosystem bubble on the farm. And then that can really like reduce your workload and reduce your expenses because the plants are helping um you know to ward off pests that otherwise we'd have to be like buying sprays and spending time spraying out there and everything so there's different like general categories for like the functions that plants play like in their role as companion plants like aromatic pest confuser is a plant that uh, is very aromatic and 
you know, sort of wards off harmful bugs and even like deer and rabbits, some plants, you know, just are very stinky to them and they don't want to come over. And so another category of plants is dynamic accumulators, which are plants with long tap roots that are mining for minerals down in the subsoil and then drawing those minerals and, and nutrients up in their foliage. And so then making the nutrients available to the other plants that then the foliage dies back and mulches on the surface um, where we do chop and drop. We really like comfrey as an example of uh, that's yeah, a classic. Yeah, it's like the queen of dynamic accumulators. So comfrey can get really big, really fast. And we have English comfrey, the Symphytum officinale, the, the herbal comfrey. But then you have to watch out that if it sets seed, if it goes to seed, you can just have a comfrey explosion. Yeah, so, I've, ha- I've had a comfrey explosion before. <laughs> yeah. I stick with the, uh, the Russian hybrid <laughs> for now. Mm-hmm. Now we have some of that um, that we're doing the research on. We have Bucking 14, which is a strain of the Russian comfrey that's been specifically bred for chop and drop for nutrient management. So once it gets to a certain size, like maybe two feet high, and that happens pretty quick, basically every month, uh, next thing you know, it's two feet high again, and you chop it down and you just drop the foliage on the, just on the bed there and let it mulch. And, and then as it breaks down, it releases nutrients into the into the soil. And then we also take the comfrey leaves and make a perin, like a liquid fertilizer in a big steep tank, which smells absolutely putrid after uh, <laughs> a few weeks of fermentation and the plants love it. Yeah. And so we've been showcasing dynamic accumulators and it was just like a year ago that um, I took a look under the hood, so to say, just to see like, I wonder like what sort of uh, research has been done on dynamic accumulators. and come to find that there hasn't really been much at all that everything up until now that we know about dynamic accumulators is based on um just anecdotal evidence or just people saying oh I'm, you're I'm saying it my place and it works great yeah mm-hmm. but yeah there hasn't really been any research into you know like how many pounds of comfrey do i have to add to you know to my row to have like a noticeable increase in um, calcium, let's say, like to raise the calcium content of the soil by one part per million. Mm. There's no actual hard facts like that. And so actually, just in the past few years, maybe in the past 10 years, uh, the permaculture world in general, permaculture world being the place where people are really into dynamic accumulators and making food for us and everything, but the permaculture world in general started to realize that there wasn't really um, a lot of research to back up all the claims of dynamic accumulators. And people started to uh, doubt that it was real. They, everyone thought it was a hoax. And that's kind of a downer. Um, some, <laughs> author, yeah. some authors who had been um, like promoting them, promoting dynamic accumulators, then like walked back their statements and said, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't have been promoting them. Wow, really? <laughs> but at the same time, I don't think it necessarily means that none of it's real. Like the fact that right. there are lots of people around the world successfully using dynamic accumulators and you know just gushing with like glowing reviews of how great it's working and everything 
that suggests to me that it's a big opportunity to you know actually do some research yeah for sure figure out exactly what's going on <clears throat> so um, in, instead of chop and drop you're doing chop weigh how much plant <laughs> matter drop exactly with some soil tests before and after <laughs> yeah so, what species are you working with so first we did a literature review did a, a lot of research looking at all the plants that people around the world are using for dynamic accumulation we had a big long list i think maybe it was about 200 plants 200 species of potential dynamic accumulators that you know some people are using and claiming that it's working very well then we uh, cross-referenced that list with Dr. Duke's phytochemical and ethnobotanical database, which is a great resource that the USDA curates. It's um, just a database. Every time that there is a study in peer-reviewed journals where there is a, uh, a plant tissue analysis and the, the nutrient content of a certain plant's tissue is reported on, then that data gets added to the database. Yeah, so we looked at the database, at the plants that are listed in there where you can get data for them, which is still pretty, uh, pretty Spartan. I have to say, any biology students listening, you could easily have a, a full lifetime career just going around taking plant tissue samples of a lot of just ordinary plants. <laughs> like comfrey, for example, there's, um, there's nutrient analysis of the root comfrey root, which is the part that's, you know, traditionally used in herbalism and believed to be, you know, the most powerful. But there is no data on comfrey leaf. And so comfrey being the queen of dynamic accumulators, that's one that we're, that we're testing. So we're testing half a dozen species in total. Comfrey is the, is the one exception that doesn't fall on both lists, that there is no, no entry in the USDA databases for its nutrient content for the leaves. But the other five species that we've chosen are plants that are both currently being used for dynamic accumulation, and everyone thinks they're really great, and that they also show up in the USDA databases. Um, so peer-reviewed studies can confirm that they do in fact have exceptionally high levels of certain nutrients. And there's a bunch of plants that fall in the, the overlap that it is confirmed that they really do have high nutrient levels. So we narrowed it down, um, plants that are accumulating um, a lot of sodium, for example, like salt, we you know, excluded those that you, know, you don't want to have a salt buildup on the farm. That's something that, that you have to watch out for, especially because we import lots of manures and so you got to watch out. Um, we also chose plants that um, can do well in zone four, which is where we are, so it's very cold, so we need good cold hardy plants, and we wanted plants that, um, that could feasibly be used by farmers in the northeast as a form of low-cost on-site nutrient management, so we chose um, either perennials or self-seeding annuals, basically very easy to grow plants. 
And so when we boiled it all down, the, uh, we got comfrey, the Bocking 14 variety of Russian comfrey that has been selected since the 70s, I believe, for use in dynamic accumulation. There's also red clover, dandelion, stinging nettle, red root amaranth, and lamb's quarters. And a lot of those plants also being plants that we just really like. Also, that yeah, lamb's right. quarters is a great food source. I love it. Red clover makes a delicious tea, and everyone loves it. Nettle. Yeah. Nettle's mm -hmm. my favorite. Yeah. Yeah, so we were really trying to choose plants, as you said, that met all of that criteria, but then also that had some use value, you know, that a farmer would want to have around that, that is easy to grow. I mean, they're basically like weeds. This is the first year of our research and all the rows are booming with very little mm -hmm. maintenance. Yeah, weeds. Yes. So basically the idea is that farmers can use the weeds or the, you know, plants that are growing around them to mulch the beds that they're planting in and not have to grow expensive cover crops that they have to get pounds and pounds of seeds in or buy in compost or mulch and things like that. Is that the, that's the idea of how it'll change how farmers operate perhaps? Exactly. Yeah. And so this first year, it's a two year study that we're doing here. So the first year, we've been just establishing the rows. And so now the plants have had a year to get their nice long root systems going and, and fill in the bed. And now next year, we'll be taking cuttings from the plants. We'll be testing the tissue, the plant tissue to see, to confirm that they do have high nutrient levels of certain nutrients. We'll also be chopping and dropping and then monitoring the um, nutrient levels in the soil. We're doing soil tests in the top six inches of the soil and the top soil, then in the six to 12 inch range, getting a little deeper, and then in the 12 to 24 inch range down in the subsoil. Because we'd also like to know, like comfrey, for example, has an extremely long taproot. I think it can be up to 12 feet long. Wow. But it also has roots up in the topsoil. And so, you know, that's what I think is one of the most important parts of our research is being able to monitor the nutrient levels in the different levels of the soil to confirm is comfrey actually mining for minerals deep underground or does that long taproot just serve to access moisture and is it actually just robbing nutrients from the surrounding topsoil mm. is it actually mining yeah that's really interesting mm -hmm. that's that's all very interesting research so I'm excited to hear about uh, the conclusions, but um, we're almost at the end of our interview time. So as AC said, uh, we met each other first through the National Young Farmers Coalition. Um, and we wondered if you might wrap it up by talking a, a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, two years ago, we co-founded the Leatherstocking Young Farmers Coalition, which is a local chapter of the National Young Farmers Coalition. We called it Leatherstocking because that's the historic name of this region um, based on James Fenmore Cooper and his books, The Leatherstocking Saga. Um, and basically, our chapter encompasses about a 50-mile radius of Cooperstown, which is basically Otsego County and a little bit of the surrounding counties. Um, and the chapter is a platform for bringing together young and beginning small-scale sustainable farmers in this region 
you know, as we said at the top, this can feel like a very isolated region um, at times. And, you know, what you see kind of driving through is a lot of conventional corn and soy, and you don't necessarily see the small uh, permaculture farms that are indeed tucked away here. Um, so when we formed the chapter, our first meeting in April 2018, we were so amazed. 40 people showed up to our meeting at Origins Cafe. Um, and we were like, wow, you know, we had no idea that there were all these young and beginning farmers. And I should say, um, when we say young farmer coalition, it means people who are starting to farm. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're young in age. And we do have our oldest member is in her 80s and just started farming. Um, so we have a range of, of people. Um, and so we come together at least four times a year um, for networking, potlucks, farm tours. Um, we do different trainings and workshops based on people's interest areas. We've done, for example, um, a solar 101 workshop on how to do solar on your farm. Uh, we've done farm marketing workshops, um, a lot of different workshops based on people's interest areas. Um, and then another component as well is grassroots organizing and lobbying. So we've met with our Congress member, Antonio Delgado, um, a couple of times and voiced our concerns and voiced kind of the unique needs of this new generation of farmers facing enormous student debt, a lack of health care, um, difficulty accessing land, et cetera, et cetera, climate change. Um, and so kind of bringing up all of these new needs of this rising generation of farmers and how we need new policies to address that. So that in a nutshell is, is what we do with the leather stocking young farmers. Um, oh. Of course, we had to kind of change gears um, this year with coronavirus yeah. and we did a couple of workshops online instead and we'll have to see you know what 2021 brings in terms of what we can do or whether we have to stay virtual so how can people get involved in the national young farmers coalition like where where are are most of the chapters they actually have over 40 chapters across the country um, so just go to the website youngfarmers.org and then you can find a chapter in your area Awesome. Great. And then how can folks reach you and get involved, maybe intern at the farm or get a veggie box if they're local? Where can folks find you? Yeah, go to our website, unadillacommunityfarm.org or visit us at facebook.com slash unadillacommunityfarm and definitely get in touch. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ben and Greta.